You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt from the song Writings on Disobedience by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S., and beyond. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral, and you can find out more, including all the back episodes, at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a story written by David Rovix. This is published at counterpunch.org. To the barricades, the Red House, and the future of eviction defense. Portland, Oregon has been in the headlines again over the last few days, and this trend will continue. The reasons for the headlines will vary depending on who you ask. If you ask the far right, they will say something about Antifa terrorists having violent confrontations with the police because they hate law and order. The mainstream media's headlines will also tend to lead with the so-called violent clashes, but then they may inform us that the reasons for the confrontation have to do with folks trying to prevent the eviction of a black and indigenous family that has lived in the Red House at 4406 North Mississippi for multiple generations. Either way, the stories you'll hear will focus on violence. If you look into it a little, you'll realize that what the stories are really focusing on are destruction of property, particularly the windows of police cars smashed by well-aimed rocks. And the number of times over the past few months of the eviction defense encampment on the front yard of the Red House that police have been called because of, quote, disturbances, 81 times according to police records. The police emphasize in their report they issued after they entered the house and arrested occupants in a pre-dawn raid on December 8th. I can only imagine what some of those disturbances might have been caused by. The house is just at the end of the commercial section of Mississippi Avenue, where what remains of one of Portland's two historically black neighborhoods stands, with its uncomfortable mix of wine-sipping gentrifiers living alongside a perennially struggling and shrinking black working class, along with increasing numbers of people living in tents that line the highway, which cuts through the neighborhood. The highway that was originally routed through that neighborhood in order to destroy it, as was done to so many other black neighborhoods across the U.S. when the highways were being built. Last time I visited the Red House a few weeks ago, I was only hanging around for a matter of minutes before a man I recognized as a fascist drove slowly past, staring at us from behind his bushy beard. A bizarre new fashion among the fash here in the Northwest lately, and in other parts of the world as well. Indeed, if you follow people on Twitter who are involved with the struggle at the Red House, 
you will see frequent mentionings of the latest spotting of a known fascist, whether Proud Boy or Patriot Prayer, along with the latest prediction of when the riot cops will next come to create chaos. While the broken squad car windows, the conflicted neighborhood, the poverty, the homelessness, and the frequently visiting fascist trolls are all very real, there is so much more going on at the Red House at this moment than these alarming reports would seem to imply. Primarily, what's going on there is pure beauty in the form of the most profound expression of human, human solidarity you're likely to see anywhere. Reading the descriptions from the police and in certain corners of the media, one would expect an unwelcome reception if you were to visit the neighborhood they're describing. In fact, as of last night, the police were officially warning people to avoid the neighborhood altogether, implying that it was, in fact, an anarchist jurisdiction, and therefore a terrifying thing. Mayor Select Tear Gas Ted Wheeler says Portland shall not have an autonomous zone like Seattle did for a while. Mayor Ted really can't stand it when the right-wingers in Washington, D.C., and the corporate landlords who own downtown call him a wimp, for not cracking enough heads, even though his cops have been cracking more heads over the past few months than possibly any other police force in the United States. So his instinct, naturally, is to crack some more heads, in the service of his friends, the corporate overlords, the business lobby, the owners of the city, the real, quote, stakeholders, as the governor likes to call them, not the ones who hold the stakes that they drive into the ground to keep their tents from blowing away. I'm reminded as I hear of these official pronouncements and fear-mongering of my visit to the biggest city in the West Bank, Nablus, years ago. An Israeli soldier took me aside, separating me from my Palestinian friends to privately make sure I was traveling of my own free will and had not been kidnapped. Once determining that I was not a captive, the soldier's next tack was to try to reason with me. There are very dangerous people in there, he informed me. They have bombs, he said. I politely thanked him for the information, not wanting to create problems for anyone in our collective efforts to cross this checkpoint. But I wanted to ask him if he had ever tried leaving the machine gun at home and traveling in civilian clothes. His reception in Palestine towns would be very different. As I entered what has arguably now become a sort of gated community in reverse, I was welcomed everywhere I went, whether with words of greeting or just the sorts of eye contact that says more than enough. Not to extend the previous analogy with Palestine too much here, but the feeling is a bit similar in the sense that when you're an American in Nablus, people there tend to assume you probably are the kind of American who does not support Israeli atrocities against Palestinians. Going anywhere near the Red House as of yesterday, you are suddenly transformed from a visitor to a participant as soon as you pass through the makeshift gates into the liberated space that is now the neighborhood surrounding 4406 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Because, you know, once you pass these checkpoints and enter the anarchist jurisdiction, you are now as much of a potential target for police attack as anyone else who is willfully disregarding orders to avoid the neighborhood. From the time people began to maintain a constant presence in front of the house as part of an effort to prevent the forced eviction of the Kinney family within it, 
until a few days ago. It was the house and its yard that was being protected. Then at 5 a.m. on December 8th, the favorite time of day for these sorts of police attacks, the riot cops moved in, arresting a number of people, including a member of the Kinney family. Much was made in the police report about multiple firearms being seized in the course of these arrests, of course with no context provided, that armed fascists are regularly coming by to threaten people, and that the police make sure never to be present when that happens. For example, or that the ownership of firearms is very commonplace in this country, especially lately, across the political spectrum, and is about as surprising as finding a baseball bat or a guitar. The raid on the Red House on the morning of December 8th will, I believe, go down as an historic miscalculation on the part of Ted Wheeler's corporate-friendly Democratic Party administration, with its recently approved massive police budget that runs this city in the service of the landlord's stakeholders. What they have done with this raid is they have massively escalated the conflict, and I sincerely hope and I suspect that they will soon regret this move. What they have done now, I believe, is they have taken two movements that were already intimately related and fused them. If it was not already completely obvious, now it is impossible not to see. The police have made sure of this, if you're in favor of black lives, you're also against evicting families onto the streets. And the converse is true as well. Since the police raid, what was limited to one house is now a neighborhood-wide conflict. The neighborhood is already very gentrified, and the displeasure among some of the yuppies around Mississippi Avenue that black-clad youth had set up checkpoints on multiple intersections was occasionally being made clear but only through the aggressive use of car horns, never by people actually getting out of their cars to engage with anyone on a human level, whether out of fear or embarrassment on the part of the horn-happy wine bar set. After the raid, the police employed a fencing company to erect a tall fence to surround the Red House with. They apparently were operating under the premise that a tall fence would take care of the problem. In actuality, the fence they erected turned out to be very useful, but not for the reasons the authorities apparently believed it would be. What transpired in the hours after they erected the fence, as, easy as, to, as is easy to observe directly, is the fence was dismantled and re-engaged, deployed as part of some suddenly very solid barricade constructions at every intersection surrounding the Red House. The barricades were set up in such a way that people who lived in other houses in the neighborhood could still access their houses, and mostly also their parking spaces. But they now had to take a much more circuitous route to get onto a main road. Each barricade has a little entryway that a human, but not a vehicle, can pass through. Once the nice, thoroughly masked young person in black who greets you ascertains that you're probably not a cop or a fascist. During my time hanging around the neighborhood there last night, many people were engaged in many forms of industrious activity. If you haven't spent much time among autonomously organized youth, whether current youth or the same crowd that existed when I was young in the 1980s in New York City, you might not realize that when you enter such, a patchless, such patches of liberated territory, whether it's a mostly outdoor phenomenon like this, or building takeover, you're entering a hive of activity reminiscent of a beehive 
with everyone engaged in doing their thing. Whether they are responsible for cooking, collecting trash, building barricades, constructing tire spikes, collecting wood for the campfires, collecting rocks, or whatever other useful endeavors. Last night was full of that beehive vibe with most people, fulfilling one role or another, whether self-appointed or appointed through an affinity group or larger network involved with specific aspects of organizing things that need to happen when large numbers of people are being somewhere for a while. Folks need to eat, sleep, and shit, while also seeking to defend the Red House. While many people were engaged in meetings or carrying out various tasks, the scouts looking for the next inevitable visit from the riot cops, and others involved with guarding the perimeter always have time to talk. Now, nothing that I'm about to say should come as a surprise to anyone who has spent much time on the ground at protests in Portland over the past eight months or so, but the crowd last night consisted of a very interracial, multi-gendered, and otherwise very intersectional group of mostly young people, mostly wearing black, which incidentally is not just a political statement, if it even is one, but is a matter of practicality for a variety of reasons. Are there, as I'm sure some readers will be quick to point out, armed sentries? Yes, there are armed sentries. Very nice armed sentries. The kind we need more of, unfortunately. And what are people talking about in there among the campfires? I pass by one meeting, noting that most of the participants are people of color. I recognize the man who is speaking to the group of a dozen or so people. He spoke at the last rally I sang at, in fact. As I walk past the discussion, he's talking about how to be inclusive of people who want to be involved, while still finding effective ways to exclude truly disruptive elements. I then came upon another couple of folks who greeted me for the sole reason that I had stopped walking momentarily while in their general area, and we then spontaneously began having a conversation about the history of eviction defense actions across the U.S. in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Back in the 1930s, all of us radical history buffs hanging around the Red House collectively noted, when the cops came to evict people, they often succeeded, but only temporarily. After evicting a household, the people would gather together, often in their thousands, to move the family back in, and uninvict them. That, we all noted, was exactly what was going on at 4406 North Mississippi Avenue. I believe this struggle around this particular house will be won. I believe it will also set the stage for the much broader struggle to come in the months after Oregon's eviction moratorium expires. But the future is very much unwritten, and there are many more players involved with this deadly game, aside from the barricade-building youth, unfortunately. And next up, we have some great news. Oh, no, it's still 2020. There can't be great news in 2020. Well, yeah, of course, there's been great news sprinkled throughout 2020 in among the crappy news and uh, all of the the different challenges that we faced in this particular year. This piece is by Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams, published at commondreams.org. Nina Turner, the former Cleveland City Councilwoman, Ohio State Senator and National Co-Chair of Senator Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, on Wednesday afternoon filed a statement of organization with the Federal Election Commission 
signaling she will be running to represent Ohio's 11th congressional district. Oh yes, Nina Turner is running for Congress in Ohio. The filing followed speculation regarding Turner's intentions after President-elect Joe Biden tapped Representative Marsha Fudge, who represents that district, as his nominee for Housing and Urban Development Secretary. And if you missed the last episode, there was a story there about that particular uh, appointment to that particular position. Progressive leaders and activists hailed the news of Turner's candidacy. Akron, Ohio City Councilwoman Tara Samples told Common Dreams that, quote, Nina was built for this. It's the right moment and the right time, said Samples, a close friend of Turner and former candidate for Ohio Lieutenant Governor. She brings experience, credibility, and is well-versed on the issues. She will fight for the people. She's been a councilwoman and a state senator. She understands government on all levels. Trevor P. Martin, a member of the organizing committee of the Central Ohio chapter of Our Revolution, the Sanders-linked political action committee led by Turner, from 2017 to 2019, called her, quote, a strong progressive voice, not just for the people of Ohio, but for the nation. Martin told Common Dreams that, quote, there is no better person to represent the people of the 11th Congressional District. Nina was born in the district, went to grade school and college in the district, and has been serving the people of Northeastern Ohio for well over a decade. With these hands... We will put her in Congress, he added. Grassroots progressive support for for Turner's house run existed even before Tuesday's news that Biden would pick Fudge for the top HUD post, but swelled in the wake of the announcement. Turner had remained coy in the face of questions about whether she would seek the office. Quote, Currently there is no vacancy in the district, and if it becomes vacant, things will unfold as they should, she told Politico for an article published Tuesday. When pressed about running, she said, well, there's been an outcry for me to at least consider it. You know, I'm a public servant through and through, but I'm just going to leave it there for now. Prominent progressive voices, including Representative Ro Khanna, who was also co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign, and Representative-elect Cori Bush were among those urging Turner to run. She'd be a fantastic ally for the movement in Congress, Kana told Politico. Turner would be a dream to work alongside, added Bush. So this is fantastic news, and uh, hopefully Nina Turner will um, actually be appointed. Mm, I don't know what the process is in Ohio when there is a vacancy midterm in most states. The governor will appoint a replacement until the um, end of the term of the elected appointee. But in some cases, a special election will be held, um, regardless whether there is a special election or whether there is an appointment. I hope that Nina Turner has an opportunity soon to uh, take that seat. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone, and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. And the people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out 
the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when we're hauled away to jail, other people take their place, surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like, it, like in uh, Montreal, uh, like at Genoa, they're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete, we've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain. So who are these corporate crooks that have their feet on our necks? Well, in this particular story, those crooks are the company's Arconic, St. Gobain, and Kingspan. And this story is about Grenfell Tower and is in particular about the inquiry into the fire that killed 72 people in Grenfell Tower in the UK in 2017. This piece is written by Peter Apps. It's published at The Spectator. A picture of an enormous corporate scandal has emerged at the Grenfell Tower inquiry to little fanfare over the last three weeks. The mammoth inquiry has been slowly going through the evidence surrounding the build-up to the fire, which killed 72 people in June 2017. Until November, it had been examining the fitting of the deadly cladding system to the walls of the building. What the inquiry revealed was dispiriting but predictable. Pennies were pinched. No one in an enormous chain of construction professionals took responsibility for key safety decisions, and the external oversight of their actions was almost non-existent. In recent weeks, though, the tone of the inquiry changed, and the revelations had become considerably more startling. Officially, the inquiry has been examining the testing, marketing, and sale of the combustible plastic materials which were attached to the walls of the tower and which burnt with such devastating effect on that terrible summer night three years ago. This chiefly means three products, the actual cladding panels, thin aluminum sheets bonded to a core of polyethylene, a plastic with similar properties to solid petrol, and two forms of combustible foam insulation which were fitted behind it. These materials were made and sold by companies which are huge global players. The cladding came from the French arm of Arconic, a Pennsylvania-based giant with 5.4 billion pounds in global turnover and roots which trace back to the historic aluminum company of America. The insulation was sold by Celatex, a medium-sized UK company which is part of the French multinational Saint-Gobain, and Kingspan, an Irish giant with more than three billion pounds in annual turnover and almost 14,000 employees. What has emerged is evidence which suggests each of these firms were aware their products posed serious fire risks, but this was concealed from both regulators and the market 
so they could be sold for use on high-rises. Arconic realized its polyethylene cord cladding had horrendous reaction to fire, following French tests in 2005, where it burned fiercely and obtained a basement ranking of Class E. Despite this, Arconic continued to market it as the much safer Class B, based on an earlier certification obtained using limited test data, which had persuaded a respected British certification body, the British Board of Agreement, to produce the certificate apparently confirming this. In a string of internal emails, technical members of its staff agonized about the morality of continuing to sell the, quote, dangerous product. Quote, it's hard to make a note about this because we are not clean, said one in 2010. In 2015, Claude Whirl, a senior member of Arconic's technical team, wrote, PE is dangerous on facades and everything should be transferred to a more fire-resistant panel as a matter of urgency. This opinion is technical and anti-commercial, it seems. Nonetheless, internal emails record the firm resolving to continue to sell in those countries with, quote, national regulations which are not as restrictive. One of these countries was the UK, which had failed to tighten rules covering cladding on high-rises following two previous fires in 1999 and 2009. The story for the insulation is a similarly miserable tale. In 2006, a UK ban on the use of combustible insulation on high-rises was rescinded, as long as it had passed a large-scale fire test, a loophole the industry trade body lobbied for. The Irish company Kingspan's insulation passed one of these tests, which took place on a fake wall made with non-combustible cement. This test pass permitted its use on tall buildings, but only in an exact replica of the system tested. Despite this, the firm marketed its insulation as, quote, suitable for use on high-rise buildings. An unforgivably naive market of architects and contractors then began merrily specifying it for a wide range of uses well beyond its original tests. Behind the scenes, the picture was even worse. After the test was passed in 2005, Kingspan altered the chemical composition of the insulation so that it was no longer the same product, according to one former employee. When retested in 2007 as part of a different system, it failed combustion tests dramatically. Kingspan has argued this was not a consequence of its product, but the firm's own internal report warned the new insulation had performed, quote, very differently burning on its own and continuing after the test fire was put out. But the market was not told of these findings, nor that the product had changed. In fact, when the country's largest private building control firm, the National House Building Council, NHBC, threatened to reject the product due to fears over its combustibility in the mid-2010s, Kingspan called in the lawyers and threatened it with defamation. The NHBC backed down. When a firm of facade engineers also raised questions about its suitability for a project, internal emails show Kingspan's technical manager, Philip Heath, who remains employed by the firm, saying Kingspan would, quote, sue the arse off them. 
Celatex, a smaller firm, was envious of Kingspan's monopoly of the high-rise market and sought to catch up in the early 2010s. By May 2014, its insulation had also passed a test, also using a non-combustible cladding panel, and it too began to market its product as safe for use on high-rises. But the test was not as it seemed. Fire-resisting boards were used around the temperature monitors that record the pass or fail, distorting the result. The report of the test from the Independent Building Research Establishment, a national building science facility dating back to World War I, but privatized in 1997, made no reference to these boards. The evidence from Celotex witnesses so far suggests the BRE staff member who wrote the report may have known about the boards, which were visible in one photograph that Celotex sought to remove, but did not mention them. John Roper, the 22-year-old graduate who was in charge of Celotex's effort to break into the market for tall buildings, told the inquiry of his regret that he acted so dishonestly, but said he had no one to turn to, with the firm's senior management united behind this course of action. He was able to secure a certificate from another independent body, the Local Authority Building Control, LABC, which said the insulation was suitable for use on high-rises. The LABC appears to have written its certificate simply by copy and pasting an email written by Celotex's John Roper, even including the same typo on the certificate. Celotex then provided this certificate to the team that refurbished Grenfell, a major target for the sales team, as one of the first high-rise projects it would win for its product. Celotex even inquired about using the tower as a case study for the suitability of its product for high-rises. So it has turned out, although not in the way the company had hoped. The three firms involved in the Grenfell cladding have all denied responsibility for the disaster. Celotex emphasizes that it had no design responsibility and that compliance was a matter for the professionals who refurbished the tower. It said it repeated the allegedly distorted test without discrepancy in 2018. Kingspan says it did not pursue the Grenfell Tower job, knew nothing of the specific design, and has now passed numerous tests with K-15 insulation, which supported its historic marketing claims, as well as its occasional failures. Arconic said that its cladding should not have been used on the tower in the way that it was, and has pointed to other critical issues with the insulation, such as the use of insulation and inadequate fire barriers. But there are 72 grieving families who will want further answers from all those involved. The crisis has now spread far beyond one tower in West London. The country currently has enormous problem after dangerous cladding and insulation materials have been installed on tall buildings across the country. Thousands of people are trapped in their homes, unable to sell, and facing crippling bills for repairs. More fires and more deaths are by no means impossible. The picture the inquiry is painting is not yet complete, but it's already starting to look like one of the great corporate scandals of our time. Corporate scandals indeed, and I go into more depth about Grenfell on my latest episode of Polyrical, my political music podcast, 
where I play several songs related to Grenfell and uh, cover some other um, pieces, including the leaders of one of these companies dumping hundreds of millions of dollars in stock before that stock value plummeted. So you can check out episode 123 of Polyrical for more. That uh, episode also features the performer Effa Supertramp. Next up, we have a couple pieces um, from Israel and Palestine and the murder of a Palestinian child by Israel. First up is one published at aljazeera.com, written by Anas Janena and Marisha Godzo. Ali Abu Aliyah had just turned 15 on Friday when Israeli forces shot and killed him using live ammunition at a protest in Al Mugayir village in the occupied West Bank. He was excited to have a birthday party later in the evening, especially since the Abu Aliya family is religious and did not usually celebrate. But Ali's father, Ayman, had let his wife know that this time they were going to throw him a party. Quote, Ali got excited and asked his mother to prepare the cake for the evening, but it's his fate to eat the cake somewhere else, in heaven. Ayman, 40, told Al Jazeera from Al Mugayir, northeast of Ramallah. According to information obtained by the Defense for Children International Palestine, DCIP, Israeli occupying forces shot Ali in the abdomen while he was observing clashes between Palestinian youth and Israeli forces at the entrance to the village. Just like much of the West Bank, protests against illegal Israeli settlements are held in Al Mugayir every week. An ambulance transferred Ali Abu Alia to a hospital in Ramallah, where a doctor pronounced him dead shortly after his arrival. Upon hearing the news, Ali's mother collapsed and the family sought a counselor to try and calm her down. Itaf Abu Alia, a relative, told Al Jazeera. Four other Palestinians were reportedly injured by rubber-coated metallic bullets. An Israeli military spokesperson denied that live ammunition was used at the protest, media reported, on Friday. Ayman described Ali as the most quiet kid, friendly, full of joy, and had a smile that never left his face. He spent most of his time either playing football with his friends or herding sheep with his grandfather. I miss everything about him. His smile, his laughter, and joy in his eyes when his team went in a football game. He has left a gap in his family's hearts that no one can fill, Iman said. His death fell as hard as thunder on our home, but he isn't the first Palestinian kid to be killed, and he won't be the last. Ali is the fifth Palestinian miner from the West Bank to be killed by Israeli forces using live ammunition this year, according to the DCIP, and the second killing documented in Al Mugayir in recent years. In February 2018, Israeli forces shot and killed 16 year old Laith Abu Naim in Al Mugayir after he threw a stone at a military vehicle. The DCIP said in a statement on Friday, 
The rubber-coated metal bullet entered the left side of his forehead and settled in his brain. According to international law, intentional lethal force is only justified when there is a direct threat to life or serious injury. But investigations by the DCIP suggest Israeli forces use lethal force against Palestinian minors in unwarranted circumstances, which may amount to extrajudicial killings. Ayed Abu Ektaish, director of the DCIP on Friday, said Israeli forces routinely violate international law by using lethal force against Palestinian children without justification. Like nearly every other case involving Israeli forces' unlawful killing of Palestinian children, systemic impunity as the norm ensures that the perpetrator responsible will never be held accountable by Israeli authorities, Abu Ektaish said. For Ayman, what bothers him most is how some people seem shocked upon hearing of a 15-year-old being shot. This is not new. We are continuously targeted. Our sheep, our houses, and our kids. If not by the Israeli army, it's by the settlers, Ayman said. Residents of Al-Mugir regularly hold protests against the nearby illegal Israeli outpost, Malachi HaShalom established on village land in 2015, according to the DCIP. Ayman said two mosques in their neighborhood have been burned down by settlers so far, Al-Kabir Mosque and Abu Bakir Mosque. His 17-year-old son Bassam was wounded twice by Israeli settlers and the Israeli army. Every Friday, Israeli settlers show up down the street in Al-Mugir and start attacking Palestinian residents, throwing stones at them or at their cars. It is all done with the intention, quote, to deprive us of our freedom and identity, Ayman said. The world knows what's going on, but no one takes action. Ali is not the first to die for no reason and won't be the last. It is a continuous struggle, and it will always be the same story until the occupation vanishes, Ayman said. I'll say what Ali used to always say. May God give us the patience to endure the occupation. And next up is some more information on that on that story. This is a piece in mondovice.net, and this is written by Jonathan Ophir. On Friday, Palestinian teenager Ali Abu Alia was killed by Israeli occupation soldiers shot in the abdomen. It was during a demonstration at his hometown of Al-Mugir against a nearby Jewish-Israeli settlement expansion. According to Defense for Children International Palestine, he was on the sideline merely observing clashes. Now, if you read the Israeli military statement on this, as featured in the Haaretz report, it seems to get really complex, as it were. Quote, the Israeli military said that there were riots in the area, but denied using live fire. Rioters used burned tires and tried to block the road, an IDF spokesperson said. And Israeli forces responded with rubber bullets and Ruger guns, which have a low muzzle speed. So the logic as formulated here is that the Ruger gun is not, quote, live fire, since it has, quote, low muzzle speed. Let's not be bamboozled by this Israeli military BS. 
The Ruger 10-22, regularly applied by the Israeli military to, quote, suppress demonstrations, is lethal ammunition. With a bullet speed of about 1,080 feet, 330 meters per second, just about the speed of sound. All right, it's not as fast as, for example, the M16, which goes 2,800 feet per second, but I'm sure none of us want to be a guinea pig for the testing of what happens when a Ruger bullet hits one's abdomen. It is interesting that Haaretz's piece does not frontally counter the military claim. It does, however, link Ruger to its own coverage from 2018, titled Israel Police Refused to Reveal Protocol on Use of Controversial Sniper Rifles. In response to petition by Israeli Arab Law Center, police reveal a heavily censored document redacting parts relating to use of supposedly non-lethal Ruger rifle. Several Palestinians, including children, were killed by Ruger fire. Israeli human rights NGO Bitzalem have been on this repeatedly. From a 2015 report, quote, Military steps up use of live 22-inch bullets against Palestinian stone throwers. Tutus are live ammunition whose impact is less severe than that of, quote, ordinary bullets, 5.56 millimeter caliber, yet even so, they can be lethal and inflict serious injuries. Tutus are fired with a 10-22 Ruger rifle, which is often equipped with an integral suppressor or from a specialty, specially converted M4 rifle. Use of this weapon has elicited controversy even within the Israeli military. In 2001, the head of security department in the operations directorate wrote that the Ruger cannot be considered a non-lethal weapon and may be used only in circumstances that justify live fire. In view of the large number of people hit and even killed by 22 bullets early in the Second Intifada, use of this ammunition was suspended from 2001 to 2008. In the time since, use of this ammunition was renewed. But Salem has documented the deaths of at least two people from these bullets. However, the real number may be higher, as it is difficult to establish whether a person was killed by these bullets or, quote, ordinary live ammunition, which is very similar in caliber. So let's summarize. The Israeli military has reapplied the use of lethal ammunition which it had earlier suspended. The military itself had deemed that the weapon cannot be considered non-lethal. In other words, this is lethal ammunition used against civilian protesters. Like in the Gaza-Turkey shootings, or quote, ducks, as the Israeli snipers call Palestinian civilians in Gaza. U.S. Congresswoman Betty McCollum, who has been a staunch champion of the rights of Palestinian children, condemned the killing as, quote, grotesque state-sponsored killing. She added, quote, I urge the incoming Biden administration to fully investigate and verify to the American people that no U.S. taxpayer-funded military aid to Israel provided material assistance enabling this taking of a child's life. Well, of course, U.S. taxpayer-funded military aid to Israel was involved, and the Israeli army statement betrayed precisely which ammunition was applied. Ali Abu Aliyah, may his beautiful young soul rest in eternal peace, does not care about muzzle speeds. That little bullet got him, and it's over for him.
the quote, only democracy murdered him slowly. Fuck that and fuck everyone everywhere who did anything that supported or enabled that. It's, it's unconscionable that we build weapons, we fund their use, and that governments like the Israeli government kill innocent people with those weapons. We need to all stand up and stop it. Acting out is one of our only options in the face of many of these challenges, many of these problems, many of these issues that are foisted upon us by our economic system, by our social systems, by our governments, by our corporations. And uh, it's only, it, it's, it needs to and will only be all of us working and fighting together that will right many of these wrongs. And as we do that, the powers that be, those governments, those corporations, just put up any kind of roadblock they can find to make it more difficult for us. Like the first story with, with David Rovix talking about the eviction and how the, the powers that be enforce those rules and put up roadblocks to those who oppose them. Here's a piece from Institute for Policy Studies, ips.dc-org. Unmuzzling dissent, how corporate influence over politics has fueled anti-protest laws. Environmental justice, racial justice, and indigenous rights movements have gathered momentum in recent years, achieving crucial victories in efforts to halt or end extraction projects that endanger nearby residents. Unfortunately, industries and lawmakers are now attempting to criminalize and muzzle these acts of civil protest, with disturbing implications not just for natural resource fights, but for a wide range of protest activities, including around racial justice and police brutality. Increasingly, lawmakers aiming to stifle protests against oil and gas pipelines have turned to so-called, quote, critical infrastructure protection laws. Under the premise of protecting infrastructure projects, these laws mandate harsh charges and penalties for exercising constitutional rights to freely assemble and to protest. Since 2017, they've cropped up in states all over the country. This report examines anti-protest laws passed or introduced in three states, Louisiana, Minnesota, and West Virginia, and traces how corporate influence has spurred elected, elected officials to attempt to use those laws to tamp down opposition to controversial oil and gas pipelines. Key Findings Big polluters often locate their projects near highly impoverished areas and communities of color. In Louisiana, Minnesota, and West Virginia projects we looked at, every single pipeline ran through communities with poverty rates well above the national average. For marginalized communities, protest is a last line of defense against pollution in their backyards, 
but, quote, critical infrastructure protection laws, conflate acts of civil disobedience with heinous felony acts. Thirteen states have passed laws criminalizing protests against oil and gas projects since 2017. Fossil fuel companies have made significant investments in lobbying around these laws. All of the anti-protest bills in our case studies were authored or sponsored by legislators who have taken large campaign donations from oil and gas companies. The most historically underrepresented communities, especially poor black and indigenous communities, alongside other communities of color, are disproportionately impacted by oil and gas pipeline expansion. These populations have the least socioeconomic resources to challenge the fossil fuel giants, building hazardous facilities in their backyards. The demographics of communities surrounding the Bayou Bridge Pipeline in Louisiana, the Line 3 Pipeline in Minnesota, and the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia all follow this trend. The fossil fuel industry has an army of lobbyists dedicated to garnering support. Marathon Petroleum, ExxonMobil, and Coke Industries are among the three most active companies involved in lobbying for the passage of critical infrastructure protection laws nationwide. Companies with vested interests in the adoption of these laws also make large contributions to the campaigns of the target state's legislatures. All of the anti-protest bills introduced in the three state case studies have been authored or sponsored by one or more legislators who have taken large campaign donations from oil and gas companies. History shows us that civil disobedience has been an indispensable tool for oppressed groups. This was true for the early 20th century labor movement, the 1960s civil rights era, and countless more examples. The defeat of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was accomplished after a coalition of activists partook in acts of civil disobedience that would now be considered a felony in West Virginia. Criminalizing protest elevates corporate interests above civil rights and civil liberties protected under the U.S. Constitution, and laws that inflict harsh penalties for protesting oil and gas projects can also impact ongoing national protests against police brutality, voter suppression, and other critical issues. And so what what is the countervailing solution? How do we fight back? How do we battle these destructive laws and create a better future? Here's their solution, and this is part of a people's future. Recommendations for policymakers and researchers. For policymakers, 
Introduce a protest bill of rights to counter existing or possible future critical infrastructure protection laws by both decriminalizing civil disobedience and holding law enforcement accountable for misconduct against protesters. Protections against law enforcement misconduct. This section includes the ideas detailed in the Movement for Black Lives policy platform, with some additional details for protecting the rights of protesters specifically. Prohibit law enforcement from monitoring the activity of activists outside of protests and from monitoring protesters participating in nonviolent demonstrations. In no circumstance can law enforcement gather intelligence or disseminate information concerning the First Amendment activity of protesters without first providing an explicit detailed account of probable cause. Any officers found in violation of this protection will be penalized for political profiling and violating the constitutional rights of protesters. Under no circumstance can law enforcement use invasive monitoring tactics such as the monitoring of cell phone data during protests. Prohibit private security firms from performing traditional public law enforcement functions under contract such as surveillance, investigation, or policing First Amendment gatherings. Demilitarize law enforcement and prohibit the use of projectiles, pepper spray, tear gas, tasers, rubber bullets, concussion grenades, and any other weapons designed to cause injury against protesters for acts of nonviolent disruption. Prosecute any instances or claims of police misconduct using vehicles such as bicycles or cars to injure, threaten, or intimidate protesters. Launch investigations into any instances of legal observers, street medics, or media personnel being targeted or injured at protests. Prosecute any officers found to be involved. Require law enforcement to both document and present probable cause for every individual arrest during First Amendment assemblies and ban preemptive arrests. Prosecute any officer who is found to have made false arrests. Ban all cooperation between law enforcement and armed vigilante groups. Any officers found guilty of violating the above provisions will be fired and have their pensions revoked. Depending on the severity of the misconduct, they may also be subjected to criminal prosecution. Strengthening First Amendment Rights Codify all demands made in the Movement for Black Lives Respect Protesters policy platform, particularly the demand to cease equating violations of property with violations of human life. Limit the charge of, quote, trespassing, to no more than a misdemeanor in all instances related to protesting and civil disobedience. Prohibit the application of conspiracy charges relating to cases of trespassing, vandalism, rioting, or any other charges short of violence against people. Prohibit the use of felony rioting charges for mass arrests, with every individual arrest at First Amendment gatherings requiring evidence of probable cause. Eliminate pretrial detention and the practice of money bail. Investigate every instance of prosecutorial misconduct, including but not limited to the failure to turn over exculpatory evidence and the introduction of false evidence or evidence that was obtained impermissibly. 
any proven instances of misconduct will result in immediate disbarment. Strengthen federal environmental regulations that protect communities from hazardous infrastructure projects and reinstate those that were weakened during the Trump administration. Reverse Trump administration changes to the National Environmental Policy Act, including the rollback of the requirement to consider a project's impacts on climate change and the newly added regulation that requires communities to limit their comments to specific technicalities. This new provision usually requires the hiring of lawyers or environmental specialists during the public comment period, which creates accessibility issues for impacted communities. Add a company history assessment to the National Environmental Policy Act, which would review past environmental violations the company in question has committed and factor that into environmental impact statement. Too often, corporate polluters are not held accountable for their past violations, beyond being fined after the damage is already done. Fines have proven to be ineffective in deterring corporate polluters. As a result, they continuously fail to offer fair evaluations of the environmental risks of their projects. Repeat offenders must be closely monitored. Reverse changes made to Section 401 of the Clean Water Act. The rewriting of Section 401 dilutes the ability of states and tribes to protect their water quality. Their rights should be restored to the original strength. Reinstate regulatory powers of the Endangered Species Act, which has been under attack by the Trump administration since Executive Order 13777 in 2018. The order diminished regulatory protections for critical habitats and made it easier for corporate polluters to pursue projects that put these sensitive habitats at risk. Create the requirement of a National Environmental Justice Assessment, NEJA, in addition to a NEPA assessment for all new chemical or fossil fuel infrastructure projects. NEJA will evaluate how projects may impact the livelihoods, bodily health, and cultural resources of surrounding communities. Understanding of the complexities of environmental issues has progressed significantly since the establishment of NEPA half a century ago, and NEJA would provide a necessary update by performing the following. Establish an equity impact mapping initiative to track geographic distribution of cumulative environmental impacts, pollution hotspots, and income and wealth inequality to identify frontline and vulnerable communities across multiple indicators. Establish an equity screen and scoring assessment to ensure that disadvantaged communities are not negatively affected by the implementation of projects. Mandate agencies to consult with tribes or communities the project is built in, similar to NEPA's public comment period. However, this period should be at least double the amount of time in NEPA's public comment period, which is 45 days, to ensure that communities have enough time to provide thorough responses. NEJA would assess how projects would affect cultural resources in a process similar to NEPA's assessment of how they would impact environmental resources. Cultural resources would include local or indigenous heritage sites, traditional agricultural, hunting or fishing practices, spiritual or religious practices, traditional livelihoods, local knowledge systems, and anything else that is required for the community in question to sustain their way of life. Evaluate the pollution levels and health statistics of communities living in close proximity to the project. If 
The community has a history of exposure to toxic hazardous materials due to past projects or a high prevalence of health issues that could be exacerbated by potential projects that should be included as a risk factor in the assessment. If construction for infrastructure projects begins prior to receiving necessary permits and completing NEPA and NEGA assessments, permit applications will be automatically invalidated. Ban appointments or hirings of former industry lobbyists at any government agencies that regulate those industries. For example, any individual who has ever been employed as a lobbyist for the chemical, fossil fuel, or industrial agriculture industry will be ineligible for appointments to the EPA. Create a matching funds program to level the playing field for grassroots candidates and to combat corporate capture of state campaign financing. Candidates can choose to opt into the program if they agree to the condition of turning down campaign contributions that exceed $1,000. In return, the candidate receives public matching funds for every contribution of $150 or less. To encourage more participation from constituents, the program would also award a $25 tax credit for small donations to the candidate. For researchers, continue doing case studies of state legislatures that have introduced or passed a version of a critical infrastructure protection law and lead sponsors of the law, a synopsis of oil and gas projects in the state that are facing public opposition and profiles of the communities in close proximity to the infrastructure projects. Compile a report documenting to what extent increases in state anti-protest laws, oil and gas project permits, and environmental protection rollbacks have taken place during the COVID-19 pandemic. Further investigative relationship, first further investigate the relationship between law enforcement and fossil fuel companies building upon the July Public Accountability Initiative report. So those are the primary recommendations from this report. Once again, this report is Muzzling Dissent, How Corporate Influence Over Politics Has Fueled Anti-Protest Laws. The report is by Gabrielle Cochette and Basav Sen, the Institute for Policy Studies, which can be found at ips-dc.org. Next up, is a piece from Common Dreams. There's a, a, a major fallacy out there on the right side of the spectrum that Donald Trump somehow is an anti-war president. Sure, he didn't start a, a, ma- a massive new war like in Iraq or Afghanistan like Bush did, but uh, that hardly makes him anti-war. This piece is by Brett Wilkins. It's published at commondreams.org. The Trump administration's 2017 decision to loosen military rules of engagement meant to protect civilians was followed by a sharp increase in civilian deaths, a report released on Monday revealed. The report by Netta C. Crawford of Brown University Watson Institute's Cost of War Project One of the premier authorities on civilian casualties in the 19-year so-called War on Terror found a 330% increase in the number of Afghan civilians killed by U.S.-led airstrikes from 2016, the final year of the Obama administration, to 2019. 
From 2007 to 2016, U.S.-led and Afghan government forces killed an average of 582 civilians each year. From 2017 through 2019, those same forces killed an average of 1,134 civilians each year, a nearly 95% increase. The sharp uptick in civilian deaths followed a decision by President Donald Trump in consultation with former Defense Secretary James Mattis and other military and civilian officials to relax rules of engagement in the Afghan war in order to give U.S. commanders more battlefield flexibility and to gain leverage at the bargaining table with the Taliban as both sides sought to end the devastating war whose course has spanned nearly the entire 21st century. From 2017 through 2019, civilian deaths due to U.S. and Allied forces airstrikes in Afghanistan dramatically increased, the report states. In 2019, airstrikes killed 700 civilians, more civilians than in any other year since the beginning of the war in 2001 and 2002. After the U.S. and the Taliban reached a peace agreement in late February 2020, U.S. and other international airstrikes declined, and so did the harm to civilians caused by those strikes. According to the United Nations, U.S.-led and Afghan government airstrikes killed more civilians than did Taliban militant attacks during the first half of 2019. The new report found that as U.S.-led bombings declined following the tenuous peace pact reached with the Taliban in February 2020, Afghan government airstrikes have increased as the Kabul government negotiates its own peace agreement with the insurgents. Quote, As a consequence, the Afghan Air Force is harming more Afghan civilians than at any time in history, the report states. In the first six months of this year, the AAF killed 86 Afghan civilians and injured 103 civilians in airstrikes. That rate of harm nearly doubled in the next three months. Between July and the end of September, the Afghan Air Force killed 70 civilians, and 90 civilians were injured. Quote, As with the international airstrikes, some of this harm could be avoided by tighter rules of engagement, as well as better training, the report asserts. A negotiated ceasefire might also yield results at the bargaining table, and at the same time, avoid escalating harm to Afghan civilians from airstrikes. The report also underscores the fact that a reduction or even total withdrawal of U.S. ground combat troops does not mean an end to war or civilian casualties, as most American combat is one-sided and takes place in the air. Crawford cites U.S. General Lance R. Bunch, who said in June 2018 that, quote, The entire purpose behind our air campaign is to pressure the Taliban into reconciliation and to help them realize that peace talks are their best option a policy that has drawn comparisons to the Nixon administration's so-called Christmas bombing campaign against Hanoi and other North Vietnamese cities in December 1972 during the closing weeks of the Paris peace talks. Consequently, the report states that there were more weapons dropped from the air in 2018 and 2019 than at the height of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan in 2011. Although there are still 43 days left in his presidency, it is possible that Trump will leave office being able to boast that he was the first president since Jimmy Carter not to start a new war. 
However, during his administration, civilian casualties have increased in nearly all of the at least seven countries under U.S. attack in the war on terror. Much of the increase has been attributed to Trump's loosening of rules of engagement. While campaigning for president, Trump vowed to, quote, bomb the shit out of Islamic State militants and to take out their families, which is a war crime. The president even suggested that using nuclear weapons in Afghanistan might result in a quick U.S. victory, while conceding the possibility that, quote, tens of millions of people would be killed. And if you don't remember, Trump was famous for dropping the MOAB bomb, which is mother of all bombs, in Afghanistan, a massive, massive, quote-unquote, conventional bomb. According to the Cost of War Project, more than 43,000 Afghan civilians have been killed during the 18-year U.S.-led war. Taliban militants have killed the most non-combatants, but thousands of men, women, and children have also been killed by U.S. allied and Afghan government bombs and bullets. In the wider war against terrorism, estimates of civilian deaths caused by U.S.-led forces range from around half a million to as many as two million. Speaking of which, in order to parade our military around the world, establish 800 bases on foreign soil, and to continually continually arm and bomb in foreign countries, we have to have a powerful military with a massive budget. This next piece is by Sarah Lazare. It's published at In These Times at InTheseTimes.com. Congress has deadlocked on COVID relief, but came together to fund the Pentagon for $740 billion. The annual approval of the gargantuan U.S. military budget is one of the most reliable rituals in Congress. It is so ordinary and overwhelmingly bipartisan, it's barely considered newsworthy and few outlets follow the details of exactly how much the government is allocating to a nuclear weapons buildup or deployments to the Asia-Pacific or the steady creep of U.S. military bases across the continent of Africa. Even under President Trump, when the Democratic leadership claims to have struck a more confrontational posture, those same leaders have repeatedly handed him bloated military budgets, as we saw Wednesday, with Congress's bicameral approval of a roughly $740 billion military budget for 2021. It is really only Trump's threats to veto the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, most recently over his objections to some liability protections for social media companies, that cut through the noise. When that does happen, the headlines often look like this one from ABC News. Quote, Trump's veto threat on must-pass defense bill meets GOP resistance. Otherwise, quote, objective ABC News is no problem randomly editorializing about the essentialness of the Pentagon budget. A search of ABC News' archives reveals no such must-pass modifier for child health care, housing relief, or COVID-related relief. But this is no ordinary year. As Congress races to pass the NDAA for 2021, it does so in a country that is hurtling towards months that could be among the, quote, 
most difficult in the public health history of this nation, according to Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Along with this health crisis, whose scale in the United States was entirely preventable, comes economic devastation. Lines for food banks are stretching for miles, and according to one study, one in six people is food insecure. As of September, one in six adults said they live in a house that's behind on rent. The nearly $3 trillion in stimulus spending so far has come from bills passed in March and April, including the CARES Act, which together combined corporate bailouts and tax breaks for the wealthy with measures that, while insufficient, provided at least some genuine relief, including expanded unemployment insurance and $1,200 checks. But without a new relief package, roughly 12 million people are poised to lose their unemployment benefits at the end of this year, and federal protections against evictions, which have been grossly insufficient and significantly walked back, and deferment of student loan payments are also set to expire. While there are some reports of renewed discussion of COVID relief, there has been little meaningful movement, and there's a good chance that this stalled negotiations will bring unfathomable levels of economic devastation to tens of millions of people. It is worth taking a moment to contrast this stalemate over coronavirus relief with bipartisan support for the U.S. war machine. The United States has by far the biggest military budget on the planet, spending more than the next 10 countries combined. There is no indication that U.S. lawmakers plan to reverse this trend anytime soon. For six consecutive years, the military budget has either increased or stayed roughly the same, taking inflation into account. As the National Priorities Project pointed out in June, the military budget in 2019 accounted for 53% of the federal discretionary budget. However, if you consider the militarized budget, including Veterans Affairs, Homeland Security, and law enforcement and incarceration, this number jumps to 64.5% of the federal discretionary budget. But actual U.S. spending on wars is far greater. Writers Mandy Smithberger and William Hartung discussed last year, quote, There are at least 10 separate pots of money dedicated to fighting wars, preparing for yet more wars, and dealing with the consequences of wars already fought. As a result, the cost of war easily exceeds $1 trillion per year, Smithberger and Hartung conclude. Being expensive in itself is not grounds for objection. Some really good things that we desperately need are expensive, like paying people to stay home so that they can survive the pandemic. The war budget is bad because the U.S. militarism, aggression, and meddling that it finances are deeply harmful, among the most harmful forces on Earth. The United States has roughly 800 military bases around the world, undermining local self-determination, emitting environmental poisons and carbon emissions, and bringing increased risk of sexual assault. The so-called war on terror has turned the whole planet into a U.S. battlefield, and now the United States is planning to intensify its militarization of the Asia-Pacific region in order to escalate against China, which the current NDAA reflects with bipartisan support. As the world suffered from the coronavirus pandemic, the United States continued its support for bombings in Yemen, ratcheted up brutal sanctions regimes, and now the Trump administration is once again engaging in dangerous brinksmanship with Iran no doubt making the pandemic far worse for those caught 
in U.S. crosshairs. As the pandemic was raging, Congress had no problem passing legislation to continue U.S. military violence. The Senate version of the NDAA passed on July 23 in a vote of 86 to 14, while the House version was approved July 21 by 295 to 125. This defense bill was then approved December 2nd by both chambers of Congress. To be fair, some have tried to use the pandemic to call for decreasing the military budget. In July, a proposal in both House and the Senate to cut the military budget by 10% or $74 billion and divert those funds to social programs failed. This proposed cut is a small fraction of what's needed to make a dent in the harmful U.S. military apparatus. Yet according to the National Priorities Project, even the $74 billion this proposal would have diverted could have funded 44 times as many coronavirus tests at the time, or provided housing for the over half a million homeless people in the country. While entirely routine at this point, it's useful to highlight on the eve of yet another massive Pentagon handout how the budget for war could instead go towards life-preserving social goals. This is useful not to buy into austerity notions of scarcity, but simply to show the profound immorality of where our public resources go. When it comes to military spending, the sky is the limit. Space Force? Sure. Roughly $21.9 billion for nuclear weapons programs? No problem. But when it comes to keeping people alive, U.S. political imagination is significantly more constrained. Right off the bat, in March, Democratic leader Representative Nancy Pelosi shot down universal robust cash payments to keep people afloat, even as high-profile figures like Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Rashida Tlaib called for such measures. This is not to say that Republicans and Democrats are equally to blame for the present impasse. As Hadass Thayer wrote for In These Times in October, the lion's share of the responsibility for failed negotiations surely lays at the Republicans' door, but the reality is that desperately needed economic relief is being treated as a political football on all sides. Rather, we should not allow bipartisan agreement on military spending to simply fade into the background as an unremarkable and immutable fact of U.S. politics. That we can find the money for war, but not for coronavirus relief, exposes the moral rot at the center of U.S. politics, a rot that must be dug out and expunged if we are to get through this crisis. And indeed, as I read that, and as I continue to record this podcast, there has been no agreement on a very heavily watered-down bill um, for additional coronavirus relief. Maybe by the time this gets published in a few days, there may be some decisions, there may be some final bill that was agreed upon that is critically needed, but will be woefully inadequate like the last bill was. Finally, here's... Uh, Something to look towards the future of how to rebuild. People, people say, 
we need to get back to normal we want to get back to normal is this the new normal we we don't we can't go back to normal we can never go back to normal when when we're faced with a crisis and when we're faced with a crisis the people in power have no intention of going back to normal the, what the people in power do and always will do is find out how they can profit from the crisis and embed new um structures that benefit themselves and fuck the rest of us it's what naomi klein calls the shock doctrine and it happens every time and so we need to fight really really hard against that and here's one thought on how we can create something better from this chaos this is by aiden harper and is published at jacobinmag.com this week at their annual conference the Scottish National Party overwhelmingly backed a reduction to working hours. The motion, which passed by 1,136 votes to 70, called on the Scottish government to launch a review of working practices in Scotland, including the, quote, possibility of a four-day week. The SNP's motion is the latest bright spot, but promising moves are not confined to the UK. Unilever in New Zealand put their employees on a trial four-day week this week with no reduction in pay. And last week in Spain, the center-left party, Mas Pay, put forward proposals for the Spanish finance ministry to consider providing financial aid to companies that cut the working week to 32 hours with no loss of pay as part of its 2021 budget. The German metalworking union IG Metal, Metal have also announced plans to campaign for a four-day week in order to prevent mass layoffs in the new year. Just two years after they won a 4.3% pay raise and the right to reduce their working week to 28 hours. And last month, a group of politicians and union officials from across Europe, including Unite's Len Mikulski, the Green Party's Carolyn Lucas, and De Link's co-leader Katja Kipping, argued that a four-day week would help economies recover from the pandemic. The New Economics Foundation's new book makes the case that shorter working time should be at the heart of a post-pandemic recovery. Critics argue that a reduction in working time is exactly the wrong thing to do during a crisis, but over the last century, the most rapid reductions in working time came in the immediate aftermath of world wars and during periods of economic crisis. Working time reduction has always been used as a way of distributing available work and reducing unemployment, most famously during the Great Depression. There are important economic reasons for reducing working time without reducing wages. The UK economy relies heavily on domestic wages and spending power, which intuitively makes sense. A functioning economy is dependent on the constant circulation of money, and the more people earn, the more they spend. Increasing leisure time while protecting pay can be expected to increase spending in the economy overall. The measure could be especially pertinent for industries like arts and culture and domestic tourism, which have suffered due to COVID-19 and depend on people having both money and the time to spend. 
As we attempt to move towards recovery, workers and their unions should feel emboldened knowing that they are owed a significant reduction in working time after four decades of stagnation. The working week has barely decreased since the 1980s. They should also feel confident in the knowledge that countries who work fewer hours are likely to be more productive. Germany, the Netherlands, and all of Scandinavia work far fewer hours than in the UK and yet have much higher levels of productivity. Workers are happier, less stressed, and healthier too. Shorter working time is a way of future-proofing our economy and ensuring that the impact of automation is one that benefits workers. Unions are already campaigning on this and winning. The Communication Workers Union have agreed with Royal Mail to shorten the working week from 39 to 35 hours for 134,000 postal workers, a concession which was a direct response to the impact of automation. Postal workers, it was argued, should benefit from the mechanization of the parcel packaging process in the form of shorter hours. Despite these pockets of change, we can't sit back and wait for a shorter working week to arrive. We know that working time doesn't reduce by itself. Instead, the four-day week must be fought for alongside demands for better pay and more secure work. In the early days of this crisis, there was hope that we could emerge from it with a new determination to build a better world. Since then, claps for key workers have been converted into a public sector pay freeze. The government has doled out billions of pounds to incompetent and exploitative contractors like Serco and G4S rather than investing in a public health system. And a huge death toll, accompanied by social and economic hardship, has grown out of the mismanagement of the virus. But the hope that we had for a fundamental shift in our relationship to work has persisted. Now, hope is leading average people to demand permanent change in the form of a reduction in working time. And that change would give us something that we understand the importance of in 2020 more than ever. Time to do the things we want with the people we love. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. The history of legislation in this country is a history of class legislation. Legislation is rarely talked about in class terms. It's talked about as if all the laws that are passed apply equally to everybody, like they will say, Taxes are raised, taxes are lowered. Do you want a tax hike or do you want taxes lowered? Well, it's kind of a meaningless question unless you ask whose taxes? Taxes where? Taxes at what level? But the idea is to embrace us all in one great family as if the measures that are passed by Congress apply equally to all of us but of course they don't. We've had class legislation in this country ever since the very first Congress, ever first 
ever since Hamilton's economic program was passed by the very first Congress, and the first legislation they passed was tariffs to the manufacturers, a banking partnership between the government and, and the government helping out private banking interests, a payoff to the, to the speculators and bondholders, and an army ready to go out, and taxes on the poor, and an army ready to go out and collect those taxes if they refuse to pay it, as happened very shortly uh, at, uh, in the 1794 in the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. Class legislation in a very straight line from the Hamilton Economic Program right up through the budget bill now being debated in Congress, right up through the oil depletion allowances of our time, right up to the enormous subsidies to the aircraft industry, which would have gone into bankruptcy after World War II if the United States government had not given enormously lucrative contracts to the aircraft industry and, and kept them alive. You, know, you go to the federal government when you're short of funds and ask them to keep you alive with little subsidy. 